0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I am pleased to welcome David Cohen and Carol Joffe, who are the authors of Obstacle Course, The Everyday Struggle to Get an Abortion in America, new from the University of California Press. Carol, welcome. David, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Uh, so I wonder
0: if before we talk about the book itself, I might ask each of you just to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, and then perhaps uh, you can talk about how the two of you came to this project. So Carol, maybe we should start with you. Tell us a little bit about you. Well,
2: I'm a sociologist. Um, I have taught in various institutions. I started a career in a School of Social Work, then I taught in the sociology department, at the University of California, Davis. Uh, Now I am very happily um, located in a medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, where I work with a very interdisciplinary group of people at a program called Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, or as we call it, ANSWER. Uh, For many years, my, uh, my research interests have been in the field of reproductive politics, uh, With an especial interest uh, in the abortion conflict, and in particular, uh, I have studied abortion providers.
1: Terrific and David,
0: how about
2: you?
1: Um, I'm a law professor in Philadelphia at Drexel University's Klein School of Law. I've been doing that for about 14 years. I teach constitutional law, sex discrimination in the law, and reproductive rights in the law. Uh, before that, I was a Lawyer at a nonprofit called the Women's Law Project, where I still do a lot of consulting work and I'm on their board. Um, I've I litigate cases representing abortion providers, um, dealing with regulations and dealing with harassment and violence. Um, and in that realm, I wrote a book. I co-authored a book five years ago with Kristen Conan talking about how abortion providers are terrorized by anti-abortion extremists and talking about all the ways that that happens.
0: terrific so so the the book itself for for readers who for listeners who haven't had a chance to take a look at it uh, walks us through uh, in and an, an really a sort of an individual, a personal level with each chapter, a different stage of the process uh, of uh, trying to attain an abortion today in the United States of America, from that initial decision that an abortion is the right choice to make, to finding a provider, to raising the money, to actually getting to that provider, and so on till the actual procedure itself. Uh, and as as uh, both David and Carol documenting each step of the way, both the law and politics winds up interfering in that process. I wonder if before we walk through sort of what some of that lived experience is for women in America seeking abortions, maybe we start with you, David, could you just lay out briefly for listeners, what is the state of federal law as it relates to abortion today?
1: I think this is an important backdrop for everything we talk about in the book and for abortion policy, because right now, um, Roe v. Wade, which was a Supreme Court decision from 1973, still still sets the baseline that no state can make abortion illegal. Um, and there's a couple other cases that have been decided since then by the U.S. Supreme Court that say that states can also not unduly burden a woman's choice to have an abortion or the process in getting an abortion. Um, Unduly burdened, that's a technical word that actually gets interpreted differently by different judges and so it gives a lot of leeway to states to regulate abortion and that's what we see. Abortion is regulated on the state level And some states are very hands-off and treat it just like any other medical procedure, so it's subject to all the regulations of medicine generally, but there's nothing specific about abortion or very little specific about abortion. And other states have very specific laws about abortion that treat abortion very different than every other medical procedure. And a lot of those regulations under the current Supreme Court doctrine are allowed And that's really what our book gets to, which is all of the different ways that these states that do regulate abortion in this exceptional way, um, how it actually hinders someone's ability to access what we strongly believe, and that I believe the evidence supports us, is a very safe, um, normal medical procedure that should not be regulated in this way. So Federal law allows abortion, but it also allows or requires states to allow abortion, but it also allows a lot of restrictions. And that's what we see in a lot of places around the country.
0: And it's just sort of as a footnote for some of our listeners from other disciplines. What 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 you all are referring to as abortion exceptionalism in this context struck me as I was reading through the book as what uh, in some spheres is, is referred to as bureaucratic disentitlement, and others, including most recently uh, Moynihan and Hurd, uh, in a book called Administrative Burdens, referred to administrative burdens. But it sort of all winds up being ways to change policy without necessarily directly confronting the core. of a policy. It's a way to erect barriers and obstacles in the way of people accessing benefits that you would prefer them not to access. Um, so so while we're we're doing a little bit by way of, of clearing the ground here, Carol, can you uh, just talk a little bit about what we know? Who are we talking about here when uh, women. And of course, that as, as you point out in the book, there are other groups of people who might not identify as women, including uh, trans men who might seek abortions, but overwhelmingly it's, it's women who we're talking about here. Uh, what do we know about the women who seek abortions? What do they have in common? What distinguishes them? How widespread is this? Can you just sort of uh, talk about sort of the scale and scope of who's affected by this? Sure. Um,
2: Well, the number of abortions have been going down steadily for a variety of reasons, not necessarily because of abortion violence or even abortion restrictions. Uh, I think they've been going down in large part because of better contraception available to some. Um, And also, there's an unknown number of women who are now, uh, quote, self-managing their abortions. So we don't really know exactly how many abortions take place each year in the United States, but it's less than a million. It's about somewhere in the 850,000 range. But what here's what we do know, that women who get abortions are disproportionately poor and disproportionately women of color. Um, that doesn't mean the majority of abortion recipients are women of color. What it does mean is that African-American women, Latina women are way overrepresented in terms of what their percentage of the population is and what their percentage of getting abortions. So it's a very vulnerable group that has very little political power. Fifty percent of women getting abortions live below the poverty line, um, The poverty line, I'm not sure I'm exactly remembering uh, the number, but it's approximately, I believe, somewhere around 16,000, 17,000 for a family of three. Uh, These women, 50% live below. Another 25% are are between 100 and 200% of that. So what we can say is that 75% of Uh, of abortion patients are poor. And this has tremendous consequences as we we relate in the book because so many, first of all, it's difficult to pay for the procedure. A first trimester abortion is somewhere around $550, uh, sometimes more depending where you are. But as we point out in the book, um, abortion access has become so difficult. Even with Rose still legal, that uh getting an abortion involves a lot of traveling it allows it involves a lot of extra costs like lost wages, like extra money for child care if you have to be away from home and sixty about sixty percent of women getting abortions are, are are parents
0: so david Carroll has has laid out for us uh, a number of the the, the factors that you together uh, walk us through in detail and sort of the ways in which this plays out for different population groups in different parts of the country. Um, I wonder if you might start us off, just sort of talk early on in that process. Just sort of what are our obstacles to, uh, with that context, right? That that we're talking disproportionately low-income women in particular. But what are the obstacles simply to getting accurate, useful information about whether an abortion is the right medical decision for the given individual, and where and how then they might determine where they could go for for such a procedure? What does that process look like for? for or uh, a woman?
1: Well, that's where our book starts. And it really um, what we show is that in making the decision, you would think that the normal way to make a decision when you have medical care issues is to consult with your physician or medical care provider, um, you know, consult with family members or other people who are close to you. Um, And maybe consult some sources that you can trust. But sort of each step of the way, it's really difficult for people choosing or considering abortion to do those things because there are um, prohibitions on publicly funded entities in terms of both advising about abortion and then referring about abortion um, and this is one of the things that just changed recently with Title 10 regulations put in place by the Trump administration around referrals for abortion from publicly funded Title X clinics. That's but family planning clinics. Family planning clinics. Sorry, that's what I meant. <laughs> um, and then there's also state prohibitions on public entities that um, in terms of talking about abortion or referring. So if you have a patient who just wants to know information and just wants to ask their medical care provider, and again, we're talking about low-income patients, often women of color, who are at these publicly funded facilities, and they can't get this basic information that their provider knows and has the information, but they can't talk about it or they can't refer to a trusted provider. Um, so that's a in. in a really invasive way in which the state interferes, but there's more. I mean, there's, there's this epidemic around the country of these unregulated uh, fake clinics, sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers, that are set up by um, anti-abortion groups, often religious groups, to mimic abortion clinics in appearance, sometimes very similar names, Um, Their advertising makes it seem like they might be an abortion clinic, and they often lure patients into these facilities just by this deceptive advertising practices, patients who think that they're going to get information about possibly having an abortion or even the first step of having an abortion, and instead they are badgered, counseled against abortion. They are told misinformation. They're told that they're at a different gestational age than they really are. And what's really unfortunate about this is that states like California, New York, Baltimore, Maryland, a local entity, have tried to regulate these facilities, but they've been struck down in courts Um, the regulations as violating the First Amendment rights of these anti-abortion facilities. So really, what the court has said is that there's a First Amendment right for these anti-abortion groups to lie and deceive patients who are making a decision.
0: And simultaneously, in some states, a prohibition against other providers from communicating actual uh, uh, medical information to those same patients.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't get it from your your trusted medical care professional. So you look up other medical care professionals, you're deceived who they are, and there they're going to lie to you. It's it makes it very difficult obviously.
0: Um and some of this right just is is simple things like, you know, do a Google search for abortion providers in your area and you mind up wind up with search results that do not help you understand which of these are actual medical providers who uh, 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 are willing to provide abortion, should that be the right medical choice for you, and others that are these front organizations uh, that may lie to you about what they are doing, uh, and, and as you talk about in the book, may work in order to prolong your decision making in hopes that you will eventually delay long enough that it is no longer medically appropriate or easy in your state to get an abortion. right? So this sort of interference starts early, but it also sometimes is strategically structured in order to impede future decision making. Um, so Carol, why don't we turn to you and, and sort of talk uh, uh, let's let's assume that you have found a way uh, wherever you are located, uh, some states easier than others to get accurate, uh, information. And you've decided, uh, that, that that's the right choice for you. What are the obstacles in place to finding either a clinic or a hospital that will actually provide an abortion? Uh,
2: well, uh, you're going to have a very, <clears throat> excuse me, a very difficult time finding a hospital because only about 4% of, of all abortions take place in hospitals, um, most hospitals don't provide them. Some, In some cases, they do if you're very, very ill. I mean, most women getting an abortion are basically healthy. Their only problem is they're pregnant. They don't want to be pregnant. But some women have real serious health issues and are not suitable for out-of-patient, uh, excuse me, uh, um, for clinic abortions, so a hospital is not going is probably not going to be your place. Um, uh, there are there are various uh, hotlines. The National Abortion Federation has a hotline. There's not, um, there's places that can help you find one. Uh, most abortion clinics do advertise uh, online. Um, the problem, as you already said, Stephen, is it's often very hard to distinguish uh, between. Um, a legitimate clinic and, and a not a legitimate clinic. Um, patients who already have decided they wanted an abortion, as David just said, can end up at a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, but the real, I mean, one of the most serious problems, even when you find out, you know, that you even when you know you want an abortion and you know where you've located the clinic closest to you, this Clinic could be quite some distance away. Um, I mean, this is especially true in there's in the six or seven states that have only at the moment only one clinic. Uh, so, if you think about the big midwestern states like the Dakotas, South Dakota, North Dakota, only one clinic. You know, it was not unusual uh, for us uh, to find uh, to hear stories from those from the providers we talked to of patients who drove. Six, seven hours um, to, to to get to a clinic. Um, the the problems become even more complicated on in those states that impose waiting periods. Some states have twenty four hour waiting periods. Some states forty eight. A handful now have seventy two hours. So imagine you're a single mother. Uh, who, need, who uh, wants an abortion you have to drive let's say six six hours to a clinic they counsel you and, and then they say apologetically you know you can't come back for 48 hours or for 72 hours uh, Do you stay over do you drive back do you sh- shell out more money that you don't have for, uh, for child care if you have if you want to stay over in the city that has the clinic, that's going to do your abortion. Do you have the funds uh, to pay for, for lodging? I mean, all these problems. And to
0: take more time off from work and exactly. to figure out who's caring it, for your kids, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, so all these problems compound each other. I mean, especially if you're poor.
0: And even worse, if you are undocumented and poor, correct?
2: Oh, if you're undocumented, you are. Uh, even though
0: clinics tr- try very
2: hard um to assure undocumented people that, you know, we will not turn you in. Um, it the, the fears for undocumented people are really, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> are really genuine given what's going on. I mean,
0: perfectly rational in this political
2: climate. In Texas, I mean, um, <laughs> you know, in Texas, for example, uh, where um, there are not enough clinics to serve the huge population, uh, in some Depending on where you live, you, will, you would have to go through checkpoints um, within Texas in order to get to the city with the nearest clinic. So uh, undocumented uh, pregnant people have a particularly, particularly challenging time.
0: So, David, why don't we uh, turn to you? And and so let's let's imagine, right? You've identified a place. You've figured out a way to get there. You've figured out a way, maybe, to negotiate if there's a waiting period. Your first visit and the second visit, and what you're going to do in between there. Can you talk a little bit about what you may encounter uh, by way of obstacles outside the clinic itself, and what the law currently says? Uh, things like buffer zones. Uh, what is what does the law say about about How the ways in which people can and cannot legally impede your ability to actually enter into the medical facility.
1: Well, I want to make perfectly clear that not every clinic in the country has difficult protesters outside their front doors, Um, but it's all too common that patients coming to a clinic are going to deal with several to several to dozens, to maybe sometimes even hundreds of protesters outside the clinic who are um, trying to make it clear in very uh, confrontational ways that they don't want the person doing this. They want to shut down the clinic. They want to stop the employees from providing abortion. Um, And this takes just all forms imaginable in terms of you know your standard protest with signs and people milling about to um people praying sometimes quietly to themselves, sometimes over a loudspeaker to raucous music and speeches um with bloody signs and um noise being piped in, crying babies. Um, and sometimes they ignore the patients and are just there to protest, but a lot of times they are following the patients as they walk into the clinic. They can't follow into the clinic, but every step up to the clinic, they are badgering the patients and trying to make them feel shame and stigma for their decision. Um, and so, you know, this kind of protest outside the clinic can be very invasive of a person's autonomy and can be scary because you don't know if someone's going to take it to a more physical contact level. Um, There are some places that have tried to implement what are called buffer zones where there's a certain distance that protesters have to be between the front door or the entrance to the clinic and where they protest, so say 15 or 25 feet distance between the entrance to the clinic and where they protest. And buffer zones are almost widely recognized by people who work at clinics and who go to clinics as helpful. They don't get rid of all problems, but they calm the situation down. They give patients and providers a space where they can walk freely right outside a clinic um, and know that they're safe entering and exiting Um, But unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court does not look favorably on these buffer zones. A case out of Massachusetts that Massachusetts had a 35-foot buffer zone, Um, the court struck down the law as unconstitutionally violating the free speech rights of the protesters. And it did so for a couple reasons. One, the court thought that what we're dealing with are not really invasive confrontational protesters, we really are just dealing with people who are speaking their conscience and trying to counsel the patients to choose something other than abortion. And there's no doubt that there are some people outside a clinic who that is their goal, and they are less confrontational, but they are still, even if you want to use the word counseling, counseling someone against their will. So there's that. But there are a lot of people who are much more aggressive than how the Supreme Court thought of them. So with the Supreme Court thinking that really all we're dealing with are these kind counselors, what they said was that 35-foot buffer zone, there's just no justification and it limits too much speech. Um, The court did not say that all buffer zones are unconstitutional. It allowed for the possibility that some might be if the state has enough of a reason and it does so in a limited way. But for the most part, what we've seen since that decision, which was just a few years ago, is that most places have gotten rid of their buffer zones. There are only a few remaining buffer zones around the country. Um, and those are still being actively litigated in the wake of that Supreme Court case. So it creates more of a, f- a free-for-all before the in front of the clinics.
0: And sorry, it's it's another way in which you're sort of pointing out the ways, sort of the the ways in which the law itself has become unbalanced and carving out, uh, arguably, uh, different different standards and rules for opponents of abortion and giving them much greater latitude in their ability to interfere and have been uh, uh, legitimizing efforts to constrain, on the other hand, uh, providers and patients. Um, so, Carol. So imagine we, you've, you've surmounted all of these obstacles and all of the other ones that you point out in the book that we haven't had time to point to, and you arrive in the clinic. Uh, talk to us a little bit, if you would, about uh, perhaps what some of the more extreme laws say about what that interaction between the clinician and the patient is talk maybe a little bit about some of the, the counseling requirements and the mandated script requirements and how that can play out.
2: You know, this is to me one of the most egregious features. I mean, it's all, it's all egregious, but basically the situation we have is that in, um, more than half the States, uh, the abortion providing staff is mandated by the state to tell lies to patients. Literally. Imagine if you're a healthcare professional. Imagine if you took an oath to, quote, do no harm. I mean, imagine what your sense of professional integrity is. You have to stand there and tell the patient documented lies. You have to say abortion, getting an abortion increases your chance of getting breast cancer. That's not true. That's been scientifically studied. It's not true. Uh, You have to. In some states, you have to tell the patients of uh, that you're you are increased risk for suicide. Not true. Uh, You are um, you you are less likely to be able to have children. I mean, one of the cruelest things to say. Uh, to I mean, well, they're all cruel, but I mean, this must be terrifying to hear if you know you want to have children someday, but now's not the right time. There actually was we have very good research on this. Uh, a team at Rutgers University um, t- studied studied all the scripts uh, that that clinics were told to uh, to tell um, patients not 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 so much about breast cancer, but about um, Fetal development, uh, because a lot of the lies are that I mean that at a very early age, uh, your your fetus, although in, in these scripts it's called your your child, your baby, can do this, this, and this. Uh, they sh- they didn't say it was about abortion. They took these scripts, which again were about fetal development, showed them to a panel of um, of experts uh, in fetal development. Uh, didn't, again, didn't say this is not abortion. Just look at these scripts, tell us um, tell us if the material is accurate. And no surprise, overwhelmingly, the material was not accurate. Uh, North Carolina, as I recall, uh, had the distinction of having the most inaccurate uh, information. I believe it was 42% of all um of all the information in in these mandated scripts, uh, you know, were lies. So, I mean, one thing you face, and and this is a problem obviously for the patient who's hearing very disturbing information, but it's obviously, um, obviously a problem, you know, for the doctors or who else in the clinic is giving this information. I mean, for example, uh, in the Dakotas, you are, you are, mandated to say you are about to terminate the life of a wholly unique living human being. Um, That's not what these abortion uh, providers believe. That's not what presumably most of the patients believe. But some patients come very conflicted. And to hear a person in authority say this, and so the providers have to say the state demands that I tell you this. Um, But it's it's, it's just, again, what you referred to before, Stephen, abortion exceptionalism. There's no other branch of medicine in the United States that we can think of where the state compels clinicians,
0: healthcare professionals, to tell lies to their patients. So David as we as we near near the end of our time here can you talk a little bit about how how what have the courts had to say about this how is it that mandating that a medical professional lie to a patient be upheld as constitutional or has it been
1: This is one of the things that just boggles my mind because uh, as I previously told you where the Supreme Court said that these fake clinics that lie to patients are constitutionally permitted to do so, what the court said is that they have First Amendment rights to tell patients whatever they want. The court has said doctors, real doctors, real medical professionals actually have- Have no such right. Yeah, they have less (laughs) rights. So the the fake doctors have real constitutional rights and the real doctors have fake constitutional rights because what the court says is that um, when you are talking about informed consent around a medical procedure, the First Amendment doesn't apply as strongly that the state is always allowed to regulate informed consent around a medical procedure. So because these real medical professionals are doing real medical procedures, the state can force them to lie. But because these fake medical professionals are not doing any medical procedures, the state can't force them to tell the truth. It's backwards. It's Alice in Wonderland. But that's what the Supreme Court's told us with this.
0: So uh as we conclude here, so so at the end of the book, which I cannot recommend highly enough, although it is an, an infuriating and angry-making read, I must say, um, you ask if change is possible. So I wonder if I could have each of you just weigh in a little bit on and what are what are sort of your, your thoughts about where we are likely to be moving forward and maybe what it is that listeners might be able to do in in uh, an effort to maybe uh, open up some space for for greater access to medical care for this particular group of women.
2: Uh, well, um, let me weigh in. I mean, what listeners can do, and this may sound lame, but nothing is more important than voting. Uh, we we in the 2018 election, we saw what happened when some of the red states uh, elected blue governors. Uh, we saw in Maine uh, huge cha- your neighbor huge changes. And now Medicaid can pay for poor women's abortions. Now trained nurse pr- practitioners and midwives and physician assistants uh, can can perform abortion, which makes a huge difference for access. So uh, very quickly, what I what I would point out, and we say this in the book at the end. Red states are getting redder. It's a very serious situation with the courts, no denying. But blue states are being proactive. Blue states are being um, are getting bluer with respect to abortion. So uh, looking into the future, what we're going to see is a very continued, a very polarized nation uh, if Roe is overturned and if it is returned to the states, We'll see an intensification, what David and I already saw in our book, namely a lot of traveling. Um, the, the future of abortion is traveling. And what uh, what your listeners can do if they're so moved, besides voting, besides escorting at clinics, which is extremely helpful, uh, it, donate um, to the extent they can to abortion funds that help women get from from, from their homes to
0: uh, where they need to go. David, anything you want to add into that as, as we, we think about the future and maybe think about what can be done?
1: No, I mean, Carol hit on the main ones. As I um, I tell my students all, all the time, um, Particularly here in Pennsylvania, where we have a primary every year and we have an election every year, if you're not voting twice a year, every year, you're doing it wrong. And that means in the non presidential years, that means in the non congressional years, every single election, whether local, state, or federal, if you're not voting, you are ceding the territory to people who want to restrict abortion and impose, you know, and even criminalize abortion because they vote. They vote all the time. And we need to do the same. Um, So that is absolutely the most essential because positive reform can happen, but it happens when people get out there and make it happen, force force the issue.
0: You are listening to The New Books Network, as is the public policy channel, and we have been listening today to David Cohen and Carol Jaffe talk about their new book, Obstacle Course, The Everyday Struggle to Get an Abortion in America, from the University of California Press. David, Carol, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It was a great, great conversation.